As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And now, from the didgeridoo to 140 miles east of Kalamazoo, at least as far as Google Maps says, this version is a tribute to Motown. Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Hagland and Phil Lairness. Hey, everybody. Welcome to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. This is your friend in podcasting, Phil Lairness. And this is what Dean Hagland and I were discussing 12 years ago this week. I take umbrage. I'm going to oh. use the word umbrage. You're going to use it? Yeah, I'm going to get... Umbrage means maybe that I'm not quite getting fully on a soapbox. Uh-huh. It just means that I got a little bit of a beef. When When... You know, the big news story in terms of the box office was uh, How Why Did I Get Married, Tyler Perry's new film uh, starring, among others, uh, Janet Jackson and Tyler Perry himself, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it opened number one, you know, it was a big surprise and it beat Michael Clayton, beat George Clooney, beat, you know, and everybody's so surprised by it. And, uh, And I understand that being the headline, being the news story. However, I'm reading the coverage of this in the Los Angeles Times. Right. And it's interesting because they talk about 
the the analysis of it and how it performs and how it was predicted to perform in the ten to fifteen million dollar range, and it performed better than that. And about how y- his movies are starting to really branch out beyond his his base audience, and his his base, his core audience were what would be considered non traditional moviegoers. I mean, church based and church based, but yeah, the whole thing, but. Uh, and the, and that people, you know, they analyze the people leaving the the film gave it a great cinema score. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what bothered me though about the coverage is that they go out of their way to point out that his films are highly front loaded. Doing a big percentage of their business in the first weekend, and all, and this is a direct quote. And although most of his movies have been solid hits domestically, they have done almost no business overseas. <laughs> it's like, and that, uh, I, you know, they mm-hmm. leave the analysts to take what could be a good feel-good story yeah. of a film performing better than expected, and then paint a sour face. Yeah. On. Oh, and everybody hates it around the world. It's like, what is the point of that? Do we constantly have to look again? I, this is coming from someone that isn't going to see a Tyler Perry. You never say never. Has no interest in seeing this particular movie, right? And I kind of like it when the pundits are wrong yes. about how a film is going to perform, and when these marketing when, algorithms when the, are way off. Absolutely, I like Love it. That. And and when a different voice. You know, a different, a different voice that appeals to a different, non-traditional movie-going demographic brings people into the theaters. Isn't that a good thing? Absolutely. And what is the traditional movie-going demographic? It's 13-year-olds. That everything exactly. is everything marketing to a 13-year-old. So if the movie isn't about for a 13-year-old, it's outside the dev- like the normal movie-going audience. Right. When are we going to get over the fact that 13-year-olds? Or just wanted to get high and play Nintendo. In so, so I find that the bringing up of how, you know, first of all, the movies are front-loaded. Most of his movies make, make most of their money in their opening. Yeah. Hello, well, welcome to the, movies. <laughs> That's every single movie. Yeah, what, Have you noticed that movies are out of theaters in four weeks? Yeah. They're, they're all, even the Harry Potter movies, it's how many hundreds of millions can it make opening weekend? Exactly. The only one and, that had legs was the last movie I could think of is uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. R- right. That was a big sleeper that just kept going kept and going. going. And the reason behind this, people, in case uh, we haven't covered this before, Please. is that studios, the distributors, make a, the vast majority, almost I think at least 90 cents on the dollar of every box office dollar that the film makes for that first week. That's why they they market these films to make them front loaded because by the end of the first month they're splitting the money much more evenly with the theaters. I see. So and just... so so in some respects it doesn't matter to them to have a film that plays eight, ten, twelve, fifteen weeks because each week it's out the theaters taking a bigger piece of ah, that dollar. I see. That's why they're very quick to replace these movies with another movie. As far as the theaters go, that's why, hello, concessions cost so much because that's where the theaters make their money. That's why also the theaters will give up screens so quickly to the newest blockbuster because the more people in the theater, the more concessions they're selling Mm. to augment the meager take of the box office dollar they're getting. So the studio and the the distributors – 
uh, really depend just on that first weekend for a majority of their profit. For the distributors, not for their profit, but probably to to recoup the cost of marketing and prints and advertising. Right. Because as we know, these really you're counting on ancillary markets to get into profits. Right. So that's the first thing is to pick on this film because, oh, it's box office performance is front-loaded. Is, is, it makes it no different than any other movie. Second, and at least this movie has a box office performance up front. Right. How many big budget movies are not doing that? Hello. Secondly, the the lack of performance around the world, well, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy right then. You know, if we constantly are saying, oh, these films have no appeal overseas, guess what? They're not going to have any appeal overseas because <laughs> right. nobody's going to fi- even bother to, well, how can we try to market these? How can we try to right. open up new markets for it? And And also... I could see that being a point that maybe gets made and also the box office front-loading is a point that could be made if it were an article analyzing what's the right level to budget a Tyler Perry movie at. Excellent if, point. If, if, the, if we get to the point where Tyler Perry is making $50 million movies, then maybe an analysis of, yes, it's opening at number one, but is that enough, becomes – subject to the interest of an article about the budgeting of the film. Right. In in the context of this, it sounds to me like sour grapes from someone who is a flack for the studios. (laughs) Oh, how could he be when he works for the LA Times? So, Dean Haglund, where do you want to begin? What stands out Uh, to you? uh, How about that you read the LA Times back then? Remember that? Yeah, I I know. That really was... uh, a bit of a shocker to me, not that I read the LA times back then, but to realize maybe that was the last time. <laughs> well, yeah, cause they did film analysis back then. They were actually, it wasn't such, um, well, I guess they had reporters covering, uh, film business, uh, before the blogs and the websites were doing that 12 years ago. Well, but, I, uh, I think they okay. still I think they still do cover it. Okay, I'm, okay. I'm I'm betting they do. And the L.A. Times is still a thing. We don't want to say that that newspapers aren't. Uh, the L.A. I, Times is one of the papers that's still important. They do have a new owner that has uh, moved them out of the old building, as we know, built in, in a new building for them, and uh, they're they're well healed. They are uh, in an important position, both in terms of their national coverage and, and I would imagine their local coverage. But here's the thing I only ever know about them <laughs> because their very good reporting staff appear on either national television shows, mm-hmm. national radio shows, <clears throat> or... Uh, on Spectrum News, because they handle uh, a major portion uh, here in Los Angeles of the evening Spectrum News, uh, Ah. is the LA Times, um, which is fantastic coverage. Um, So uh, occasionally I will see an entertainment roundtable, but usually it's leading into awards season, which is consistent with their traditional uh, occupation, it seems, as cheerleaders, as I think I say flax for the, the, the movie industry um, in that clip. So they still do that. But I also recall, I think it was, what, a year and a half ago after the Oscars when there was a movement uh, being put forth to really kind of force the hand for equal pay for women. 
And yeah. uh, it was a story that was really, if not broke, was most extensively covered by the LA Times. But again, I only knew about it because of NPR. Ah. So you were listening to NPR, then you went to LA Times to no, find the f- No, the, the reporter was on NPR, interviewed about oh. it. Once the reporter was interviewed about it on NPR, I had no need to go to the LA Times. <laughs> Plus, uh, plus, believe it or not, I wouldn't go to the LA Times. I'd stay home. I'd look it up online. I, there's no yeah, need to go to the building. Go to the building. How are you? Um, yeah. So, but why? So, that it, but it is an amazing transformation uh, uh, that is, I guess, related to the internet. Uh, but more specifically, right? Um, I guess the LA Times goes, even if it was a flack, even if it was the high school paper of the movie industry, it was must reading for those in the industry just to stay in the know. And yet the emergence of deadline, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and the loss of newspaper advertising. Yes. Really seemed to sink their status as must read. And I'm wondering if the latter is because as long as they were the paper most important to get the big studio motion picture advertising seen, seen by a large audience, then that paper was going to get access, even if they had to yield some editorial control from time to time. At least they were getting uh, unparalleled access to yes. the, the movers and shakers. Yes. So, yeah, the diminished eyeballs, as they shifted online, then made your advertising dollar have to shift as well because you're chasing eyeballs. You know, it's same in the car industry. Cerritos Automall uh, in L.A. Times would put those flyers in all the time, the color flyers of all the used cars, and there was a misprint. A car was a dollar, and no one came in to claim a dollar brand-new car. And, and then they realized, why are we buying these major insert flyers in the LA Times when even <laughs> when we are obligated for a printing mistake, no one took us up on it, meaning no one read that damn thing. Right. Wow. Uh, and so then did they lose their unfettered access to the movers and shakers at Cerritos Auto Mall and stop covering I think they did. the behind-the-scenes yeah. machinations? So that had to be a heartbreaker, especially at award season. Uh, uh I, you know, there is a trend car of the year. Yeah, there is. That's true. And <laughs> and I've had my acceptance. I've dreamt of the acceptance speech I would give for years. <laughs> you could host it. I would get played off, though, I think. in my. I mean, there's so many people for me to thank if I win any automotive award whatsoever. Um, right. All right. Host, I'm hosting the Auto Trend Awards this year. Uh, <laughs> Oh my God, that's so excited. Have you met my orchestra? It's a guy with a Casio keyboard. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, So that was, that came up very much at the end. Yeah. The, uh, the LA times, that was exactly what struck me. I want to be, I want to, I want to then move all the way to the beginning. And uh, I would hazard a guess that I have not used the word umbrage this decade. (laughs) I think you have not. That's right. Umbridge before your soapbox. Now you just trip on your soapbox all the time. Oh my goodness. My shins my shins are so bruised from running as you know, I was blind for quite a while, so I was running face first into your soapbox. Um Mm -hmm. Umbridge is a good word. It is a good word. 
Yeah. You should use it more often. This is the decade starting 2020. <laughs> uh, hindsight is 2020. And <laughs> what we see in our rearview mirror is that umbrage is a beautiful, beautiful word. Okay. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about in that clip, uh, you know, I don't think we got to, I, I don't, it was probably the last time I thought about Tyler Perry to be honest, right. honest with you. So yeah. I, don't, I don't think we need to double down. I like, though, that young Phil... I feel like Phil Ernest today wouldn't care how a Tyler Perry movie was covered. Um, <laughs> but I like that I did take umbrage to their needing to diminish his accomplishment with those right. movies. He's number one in the box office, but it doesn't play overseas. Um, and yet now, more than ever, right? Overseas box office matters and... And the kind of movies he makes, uh, I mean, but, you know, comedies and budget size. If, right. if Hollywood ha- proper had not written off those movies altogether at that point, they certainly have now. And, you know, if, if you want to make a comedy and you want to make it for less than a million, good for you. But other than that, it needs to be more than 100 million with A-list stars and a lot of action. In fact, I right. saw a list, you know, the, the, the best of the decade lists are starting to come out. And uh, it's interesting when they uh, come out and they're, you know, specific to genre. And uh, I saw a, a little survey of just a handful of critics of the best comedies of the decade. And oh, yeah. let me put it this way, not a deep bench. <laughs> I can't even think what number one would be. No, the, yeah, no, comedy. no consensus around it. I mean, you would think maybe Bridesmaids because that was such a big hit, but or Grand Budapest Hotel, maybe. Yeah, I don't even know if people consider that a comedy so much as they consider it a Wes Anderson movie. Right, uh, but I laughed through those, and it's you know, but it's so bittersweet, <laughs> also. But I, I'm with you. I would consider it a comedy as well. Um, yeah, but it's but but no consensus and no. Uh, at, at all, and like I said, not a deep bench. So it was, it was kind of stunning. But I, I also just think, you know, obviously, like we're saying, in terms of the the, the budget, the, those middle or modest budget, uh, really anything from five to fifty million. It's you're hard pressed to see those theatrically, theatrically released anyway. Uh, yeah, right. They they go to Netflix. They go straight to Netflix. Those movies. Um, yeah, that's in their yeah. wheelhouse. Um, so that's changed, but the but the importance of the foreign box office uh, obviously hasn't changed and has only grown. And I know that the, we don't mention it by name, but I I think that well, and I why would we? I guess it probably hadn't opened quite yet. But China seems to be the market in virtually every industry that uh, is most important moving forward. And I so I couldn't help listening to this clip uh, in the wake of so many different news stories from obviously trade wars with China to the 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 human rights issues in uh, uh, the Hong Um, Kong protests and uh, the NBA, which is, you know, not movie, but is an entertainment brand and an entertainment brand partnered uh, most significantly with Disney, because Disney owns ESPN and ABC, two of the, right. ma- the major, you know, broadcasting partners. And uh, so there's so much money connected to the Chinese market and uh, and even more and the promise of more going forward. Um, 
that it is it kind of dwarfs to me almost any other issue when it comes to the exploitation of entertainment properties, be they a basketball game or be they a movie. Because if you are a brand that uh, prides itself on being American, and if you are a league that prides itself on promoting uh, the open discussion of issues like the NBA, or a, a brand that is about telling human stories and supposedly about freedom of expression, uh, it's a really, really tricky situation to want yes. to partner with China, isn't it? Yeah, because you're then obligated to, uh, I guess, withhold your crusade for human rights, as it were, be it Hong Kong or uh, there's some uh, things that show up on my Facebook now then of the re-education of Muslims uh, in northern China that seems to be somewhat uh, worrisome, as some would say. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, how do you reconcile? Uh, I'll take all your cash, but at the same time, I will criticize uh, your political and human rights activities. You're then in a tricky bind, I would say. You know, we used to hear when we were making Truth is Out There and recording interviews for Truth 2, we used to hear a lot, and it's in the news all the time now, uh, but we used to hear the phrase, the deep state, a lot, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. used now, it's weaponized now to mean career uh, government employees. And <laughs> at times in conspiracy world, uh, it meant that. When we, when we would talk to people, of course, the term deep state, though, goes back much further than that. And it was meant to describe uh, the, the hold that corporations, that, that economic interests held over the government. Right. And I remember uh, arguing for that interpretation, uh, though we didn't specifically get into a debate about the semantics of deep state. But Graham Hancock, a man I, I really admire and enjoy, as you know, uh, when yeah. we were with him in, in London on a panel, I got into a debate with him about, you know, this supposed war that's uh, being waged for your free-thinking mind, right? That there's <laughs> right. a campaign on to brainwash you into thinking what they want you to think. And he was talking about the deep state of governments around the world, right? And I looked at him and I said, just glancing at you, I count 16 brand names that you are wearing. (laughs) Right? And he said, yeah, "Yeah, but there's no problem with that. That's not a problem. Because Um, he purchased it? uh, Yeah, he believes that it's part of his expression of who he is and not an expression of who he is that was created by brilliant and well-heeled uh, marketing teams on Madison Avenue or, or wherever, right? Yeah, yeah, and, wherever they are. Um, and, and at the very least, right, as uh, our, our, our friend who runs, Marilyn Schlitz, who runs uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences, as she That's says nice. to you in, in Truth is Out There, at the very least, corporate marketing 
proves the techniques that so many conspiracy uh, theorists believe are being used by governments around the world. At the very least, it's still important to study uh, industry because they've proved the techniques that you claim are being used, right? So anyway, I I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that, but in our recent discussions about cancel culture and all this, it really has emerged, right, that the populace in this country has a significant power, never mind at the voting booth, but at that virtual voting booth called the marketplace, where if you call on a boycott of advertisers, you can affect change. Um, Not always, but you can. You can. You can. Yeah. And uh, so I recall, right, the, the, um, the, the movement to force divestiture from South Africa uh, back in the 80s. And, I remember. Banned South Africa. Yeah. I didn't, yeah to, I didn't use uh, Shell Oil for the longest time. Well, whereas I'm soaking in it. Uh, just like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, but it worked, right? You, you know, Coca-Cola divests from South Africa or Pepsi or whatever it was, and suddenly we have no more apartheid. Um, it is amazing how in parts of the world historically where free market enterprise has gained a foothold, how quickly those parts of the world, uh, rely on that kind of economic support. Yeah, that's right. Right. And when, and when its presence and existence is threatened, change can be affected quickly. Um, you know, it was an opening of markets in the Soviet bloc that led, uh, in part, to the the you know tearing down of the wall, right? Right from uh, perestroika, the uh, yes, the, the relaxing of conditions of companies coming into Moscow, and then from there, it wasn't it wasn't more than two to three years, if I recall. So. This is a conversation that I think is going, it's, you know, it's only going to evolve. It's only going to get more important. There, right. I have no problem, honestly, with people speaking out on social justice issues in this country, say that they're NBA figures in, in the case of the recent NBA controversy. I have no problem with them speaking out on, on domestic social justice issues and remaining silent on the perceived social justice issues going on halfway around the world because for a couple of reasons. One, because I do think it's our responsibility to clean up our own backyard first. Yeah. Uh, and to be an example first, right? Uh, yes, it's, it's shocking and horrible to see the footage of, you know, police officers in Hong Kong shooting unarmed protesters at point blank rage. That is shocking and horrible. It is also something we tend to see in this country. So let's yeah. uh, prevent it here, and then we can have, I think, the moral high ground easier to say that it shouldn't go on anywhere. Uh, so that's one reason that I'm all right with them remaining silent. I don't mean that they have to, but if they're uncomfortable speaking out about what's going on halfway around the world, especially because maybe they aren't as uh, familiar with it, then yeah. that's all right. That is not a contradiction to me, that you speak out on social issues here and you wait until... Uh, perhaps you're better versed to do so elsewhere. But right. also, uh, I have no problem with them remaining silent when we have players, NBA players, NBA team 
employees in China, uh, you know, maybe you remain silent until we get everyone out of there. Um, which was a recent case where we had teams playing exhibition games there. Oh, and, I didn't even hear that story. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but companies are going to have to face this. They are right. going to have to figure. I remember the great uh, post Tiananmen Square uh, cartoon that I think was in Time magazine. But it was if we really wanted to change uh, the the the. Um, the situation in China in terms of human rights, uh, here's the protest that could make a difference. And right. what it showed was Mickey Mouse standing in front of the tanks at Tiananmen Square. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and that was decades ago. It's only all the more true now. I know. Right. So how then do you convince major corporations to take the moral high ground, if it is a morality issue. Uh, well, it's tough. It's tough, right? Because, um, one, so many of these corporations have been benefiting off cheap labor for so long, right? Well, that's right, yeah. Um, that's that, that phone that we're tweeting our protest off of <laughs> yeah. uh, was, was made, made in China. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then the other uh, element of it is, unlike all these other examples— that we're talking about where American companies were ultimately uh, or Western companies were ultimately able to exert influence in these markets uh, to affect change. They were markets that these industries could live without. Ah, uh, right. And yeah, exactly. They could sacrifice it. And, and, and just looking at the NBA, which needs to do better and needs to figure out to do uh, how to do better. But that's OK. Take your time. Be thoughtful in, in, in to a degree. Right. Um, I yeah. think that's all right. Um, and making missteps is apparently unforgivable in our modern world. But it takes time to evolve an approach to complicated, thorny issues. But here is what makes it th so thorny for them. Apparently, if what I read is true, uh, 600 million uh, Chinese people, you know, in China, 600 million people watched at least one NBA game last year. That crap. That is. Uh, that's big numbers. Yeah, that's big numbers, uh, especially when you consider at most one tenth of that figure watched an NBA game here in the country where these games are played. Right. So. so, yeah, you got to, again, the advertiser goes where the eyeballs are. Yeah. So that's a that's a doozy. But uh, but I, I do hope to dial this back to our clip. I do hope yeah. with this conversation of they don't play overseas. Uh, let's make good movies that play well in America and that express the American experience. I'm not saying exclusively, but right. let's make those movies because after all, those were the movies that made American movies uh, the most watched films in the world. Back in the day. Yeah. 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 They always exported for a century. So there's no reason to think that they won't export now instead of yeah. feeling the need to cater to specific audiences. I guess. I know, but, you know, when we started talking, I sort of looked up Chinese box office 
And now number three in the, this this year's Chinese box office is a movie I'm dying to see. It's called The Wandering Earth. And uh, astronauts and engineers have to take the Earth out of the way of the sun expanding, but not drive it into Jupiter. I'm like, hey, that sounds like my kind of movie. So uh, suddenly I'm like, well, how come that wasn't made here? That sounds like such a great plot. But it's a it's a all Chinese Chinese astronauts Chinese saving the planet. Yeah, that's fine. That's a Chinese movie. It's right. all right to want to see Chinese movies to have yeah, them good. making their own movies. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying okay. though that we shouldn't be here in America making movies for the Chinese audience. We I should be it. making it for the audiences here and exporting them. Uh, that well, leads, I think, to better storytelling. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. Absolutely. Uh, hey, so uh, we need to uh, discuss, and I think we'll do this a little bit differently. I want to discuss a celebrity death and then move into discussion of a movie before we come back to the morgue. We'll, t- we'll just step into the morgue for a minute, okay. and, then, and then we'll step out for a nice little oh, conversation before we uh, duck back in. So this <laughs> is the start of something we call Celebrity Deaths. Celebrity Deaths. Robert Forster died, uh, Dean, and uh, this was stunning because he had been so active lately, uh, and Mm -hmm. I I guess it was a very short-lived battle with brain cancer. I know, of all things. So, terrible. Uh, Of course, uh, I still fondly uh, have my Robert Forster letter opener. Um, What? (laughs) Yes, he gave me as a gift. We were both on a uh, at the Acme Comedy Theater. We were back to back celebrity guests on a kind of a what's my line kind of live game show that uh, that we were. And uh, he thoughtfully, apparently, he did it all the time. Just brought a gift to give to me, the other celebrity guest on this game show. I like I was unbelievably touched. And I still have it. It's my Robert Forrester letter opener. So I can only think that he knew that uh, if he did that, you would put in a good word with Vince Gilligan. And he might therefore get to play an important role in the Breaking Bad universe, which he did. Um, (laughs) It's exactly how that happened. uh, I so what you're saying is all those times I saw him at Silver Spoons, the sadly departed uh, coffee shop, Greasy Spoon in West Hollywood. All those oh, times I saw him having breakfast because he ate there every single day. I could have asked him for a letter opener. <laughs> well, I, I think you uh, would have been booked on a similar show that was because doing. Because here's, let me paint the picture for you. It's <laughs> Phil Lairness yeah. and um, maybe Marsha Wallace from the New Heart Show. And okay. uh, and Robert Forster and Phil Lairn is sitting there, of course, with a stack of mail that he needs to open uh, <laughs> because you don't just go and have breakfast by yourself. So a stack yeah. of mail, which, you know, I'm using I'm using knives and forks. I'm using my my actual. Anyway, I've gone far enough with this. All right. Robert Forster, born in 1941, uh, was 78 years uh, of age and uh, appeared in. Dean, more than a hundred movies. Wow. And even when his career was in low ebb for a couple of decades, because he he starts as impressively as I think an actor can. I mean, uh, of course we remember uh, 
Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool. What a, yes. what a great and groundbreaking film that was, and what a perfect descriptive for Robert Forster, because he really was medium cool. He was, yes, he was. He wasn't cool in the way that so many of the icons from the 60s were, the Steve McQueens, the Clint Eastwoods, who seemingly were unfeeling in their coolness. No, he was feeling and therefore had a bit of vulnerability, uh, but never wore that vulnerability on the sleeve. At the same time, had a uh, kind of a, a quiet, uh, speak softly sort of determination of a masculinity of a bygone era, a, a, a Gary Cooper-esque kind of masculinity. Um, right. I guess you could say. Yeah, very Gary Cooper-esque, wasn't he? Um, but with a modern sensitivity, I think. Yeah, for sure. And so he was indeed medium cool. He, he starts, uh, I, I think his first major role was in reflections in a golden eye for John Houston. So we're talking about a guy that gets off to just a gangbuster start. He has a hit yeah. television series in the early seventies, Banyan. What could go wrong? But, <laughs> but by the eighties, you know, he's, uh, He's doing a lot of just uh, cheapo uh, kind of exploitation movies. Sometimes they're hits, like he plays the villain, the Lebanese terrorist in the first Delta Force movie. Oh, I which, didn't know that. Which was a surprising hit. Um, starred in the, the box office disaster for Disney, The Black Hole. But just because oh. it was a box office disaster didn't mean it wasn't fun and didn't mean he wasn't good. And that's the oh. thing that even when his career was in low ebb, and after his Jackie Brown Academy Award-nominated comeback in 97 and thereon, movie, yeah. movies were always better because he was in them. Right. And so uh, this, is, uh, this makes it all the harder to hear this uh, brain cancer. Well, yeah, and, and because he was doing such important – I don't know if important matters, but, but, but <laughs> big work – I mean, yeah. notable work, and he was so good in it. Uh, just think about this. I mean, yes, you would need, we mentioned Wes Anderson earlier, but if you wanted to be uh, acquainted with uh, the popular culture of film and television of the last quarter century, right? Yeah. Uh, I think three names uh, whose works you would need to see uh, would be uh, Vince Gilligan, would be yes. uh, Quentin Tarantino, would be David Lynch. And this guy uh, collaborated with all of them several times, right? right. And, uh, you know, from, from Jackie Brown, as we talked about, uh, uh, Mulholland Drive. Um, he was, of course, an original choice to play Sheriff Truman in the original series, Twin Peaks, was unavailable and so, therefore, Michael Ankeen got cast. When oh, you're Mike, kidding. When Michael Ankeen was unavailable due to illness and retirement to reprise that role in Twin Peaks The Return, they were able to cast uh, Robert Forster as his brother. Uh, so he did get to play a Sheriff Truman, and in some ways is such the heart of Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and then, indeed, uh, just... As if to drive this point home, 
uh, about why it's so shocking because he was still not only working but delivering really great work, ever better work, honestly, such nuanced work in things that mattered. Uh, if, right. we, if we can say that any television and, and film matters, um, the very day he dies, uh, his latest movie, uh, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, uh, comes out in theaters and on Netflix. Ah, uh, how ironic. Wait, is that ironic? No, I don't know if irony means what you think it means. No, I learned it from Atlanta. Atlanta Morissette. So. Well, I'm going to take umbrage. If this yeah, were take umbrage post- at my use of irony. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, Robert Forster, uh, so many roles uh, that are so memorable, and often they were in movies that were memorable, but not always. Uh, right. But 100-plus movies, and like I've always said, uh, you work that often for that long, it's because you know what the hell you're doing, and you're probably getting better at it as you go along. Exactly. Practice makes perfect. Uh, So, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Uh, I was so excited that uh, Lily and I were talking about going and seeing it at the Vista, uh, where it was playing on the big screen. It was playing in theaters this weekend. Uh, no longer. Um, and, uh, this is spoiler free. Um, (laughs) this, this review of it. Um, though, honestly, I don't know how everybody's saying no spoilers, no spoilers. You know, it takes place right after the finale of Breaking Bad. So if you've seen Breaking Bad, you know, all the spoilers. I mean, it's, (laughs) uh, it's not developing new plot points. Um, it's, it's just what happened to Jesse in the 24 hours after that. Oh, really? Just, wasn't he just driving badly in one direction, uh, confused and yet smiling? Yeah. Relieved. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's two hours of that. It's just a two hour (laughs) close up. Wow. Wow. That is really experimental. No, I mean, he has to get it off the street. He has to go visit, uh, you know, the vacuum cleaner repairman played by, uh, Robert Forster. To be able to disappear and start a new life, and there are flashbacks. Um, Vince Gilligan's at the top of his game as both a writer and a director on this. It is the kind of movie that demands being seen on the big screen because he is using a big screen approach to it. It is, uh, in terms of its suspense, in terms of its cinematography, in terms of its action, it's a big screen movie. Um, Is it well done? It's very well done. Uh, it stretches like it. credulity with how old and doughy uh, Aaron Paul has become. Uh, and ne- oh. n- never mind everybody else. I mean, he is in one scene still playing a teenager. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, so it stretches it a little bit. But, you know, Better Call Saul has already kind of introduced that motif. And we don't care. Right? right. Um, yeah. But here's the thing. Is it necessary Ah. and i don't and again is any movie or television show necessary right we could get into that but i mean uh that question that as storytellers uh you have to ask right do i do i need to do this is this a story that is needing to be told and there is zero sense of that there is zero sense that this was something that Vince Gilligan needed to tell. And if it was, he didn't include anything 
that pertains to why he needed to tell it. It is a wonderfully executed and utterly unnecessary one-off toss-off. Really? That seems weird. You would think that the uh, there would be, if you're going back to it, you want to explore something uh, contemporary that uh, you didn't have a chance to in the series that can only be told in a two-hour movie. Uh, it seems odd that that would or maybe you missed it. How about that? Is that a possibility? I I don't <laughs> know if I did. If I did, uh, so did everybody. Oh. Oh, is that the consensus you're hearing that from? Yeah, I've been what? looking at that. I've been going, you know, I asked first Lily, how did you feel about this? And uh, did you like that? And she was silent for a long time. Did, yeah. did you like it? Uh, and uh, the first word out of her mouth was... Uh, I don't know why why he wanted to make that. I don't know why he needed to make that. Um, there is a degree to which, look, it's enjoyable if you love the characters and you want to revisit it. I don't mean that it's not enjoyable. If you were a fan of Breaking Bad and you love those characters, then yes. it is a pleasing epilogue. Um, yeah. It would be the equivalent of a Harry Potter Christmas special. As long as <laughs> as long as B, B. Arthur doesn't uh, sing, although yeah, you're, B, you're not B. Arthur singing in the cantina bar, oh, that's yeah. necessary. Oh, that is necessary. Don't kid yourself. Um, uh, but that's no, it. I, it's just it's it's a little bit, and I and I'm not saying he's traveling in nostalgia. He does avoid nostalgia porn that we are just inundated with over and over again. But the opportunity. Right. To revisit these characters, if you love them, is enjoyable. At the same time, it is nothing more than just an epilogue, just a little coda. It's uh, it it's like here's an unreleased bonus track that we discovered all these years later off a great two record live set that somebody oh. recorded. Well, that's tragic because, you know, I and as when we talked to Vince on our show uh, years ago, it was, to my mind, uh, the equivalent of every writer wanting to write the great American novel. But he did it in television form. It involved health care, uh, how high school teachers are poorly uh, dealt with, suburban uh, machinations of the growth of America. Like it, it touched on so many themes in one show uh, and about the need to be successful and what what money and fame and power does and all that sort of thing. And uh, you would think that those themes would come back at least touched upon in, uh, in a two-hour movie. It reminds you of that great American novel that the show was from time to time. And yes. it reminds you of how bold and uh, uh, incredible it was to see the evolution of a show where a protagonist you are following uh, is the cancer, is becoming yes. the cancer that would ultimately right. claim his, his life. There are unanswered questions that I think would be worthy thematically of continuing to explore years on. Like what happened to Walt Jr.? Did he get the money 
that Walt, uh, you know, used rather incredible coercive means to ensure for his son. Did he receive it? uh, Not only did he get it, but did he receive it? Did he put it to use? What has become of the son? Can the apple far, far from the tree? Right? Yes. There is so much here. You could do a Godfather 2 exploring the son with flashbacks to the father and, and things like this. Uh, and to be honest, I thought that's what this was. This I is didn't really... set the day after the finale. It is just to give Jesse a proper send off. Uh, yeah. And Aaron Paul is great. Aaron Paul is an undervalued actor. Uh, he was so good in Breaking Bad, as we know, but he tended to get overshadowed by uh, Cranston's performance. Um, right. And then in the final season, got overshadowed by the storytelling needs of Walter White's storyline. And right. I think that's what why we did this. But again, look, if you're not a fan, if you don't love the characters, uh, never, never mind a fan of the show, if you don't love the characters and yeah. want to just see them doing a scene you haven't seen before. Um, then you can skip it. You can skip it. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, hmm. it's, it's very well done. Very, very, very well done for that audience. And yet, even as that audience, and I'm a shining example of it, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, well, that happened. Oh. So, uh, there you go. Um, you made me sad. And, and how weird, unlike, and it's so episodic in its structure, too, uh, it's the first time I've ever seen anything in the Breaking Bad universe where, you know what, I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk away and we can fin- continue watching this later. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you paused it a couple times? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, anyway, so there we go. Now anyway. we're, now let's go back into the uh, Chill Pack Morgue to see who else is waiting for us, Dean. Yes, okay. Celebrity Deaths. Francis S. Curry died. Do you remember who uh, Francis S. Curry was? I do not. Give me a, give me a clue on that one. Uh, now that he is dead, we only have two living Medal of Honor recipients who served in World War II. Wow. That's not many left. Um, he was, so you're not going to take a guess at who he was. Uh, I'm going to say he's a soldier. In World Very War good. Two. You were dead <laughs> on, dead on. Look, <laughs> at, at the age of 17, uh, he enlists, uh, and, uh, he goes overseas. I, I, I guess he's there uh, a month after Normandy, after the invasion of Normandy. And, yeah. uh, he is suffering from frostbite because they didn't send him with winter gear. Oh, good um, Lord. And uh, he received Medal of Honor for his valor during Battle of the Bulge. Oh, uh, yes. Wherein he single-handedly wielded an arsenal of weapons against the 1st SS Panzer Division as they advanced on Allied troops. And I would uh, think in honor of Francis Curry, you could... uh, I don't know if it's Lilu or what, but it sounds like a table is being built over there. <laughs> it is Lilu. She is uh, going out of her mind with boredom, and so she's tearing apart a foam uh, noodle. Well, so. t- tell her the story of Francis Curry, a 17-year-old okay. who takes out an entire Panzer division as they uh, advanced on Allied uh, troops. He, yeah. he, he was 
counterattacking with grenades, two different machine guns, two different rifles, and a bazooka. He takes out several of the tanks. And uh-huh. he does so because several of his fellow American soldiers who had been in a crash were pinned down. And wow. he rescued them all. They all survived. And like five tanks he takes out single-handedly. That's amazing. Uh, so in his service, like as if that weren't enough, the, 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 the man, the, the kid receives a silver star, a bronze, bronze star, three purple hearts during his World War II service. Uh, as I mentioned, his death leaves just two World War II Medal of Honor recipients still living. How rare is the Medal of Honor? There's only 70 Medal of Honor recipients oh. alive, period. Uh, I did not know that. And, and like I said, only two from World War II. And this was a man uh, apparently lived uh, just such a humble life. Uh, I think his occupation was he booked conventions into somewhere in South Florida. That's what he did for a living. And none of the people who worked with him knew of his World War II exploits. You know, he... he really? Yeah. Didn't um, mention it? Yeah. It's, uh, he would not have... Uh, he would not have made it in show business, nor... <laughs> Nor uh, would he have uh, really been uh, the auto trend uh, winner of the year. Motor trend car of the year. Car of the year winner. Where you just shove those awards down people's throats. Okay. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, again, thinking about how much we've talked about uh, these heroes. Um, talking about masculinity of a bygone era. These heroes yeah. uh, leaving us. And, uh, you know, maybe their departure from the stage is an opportunity to recount their sacrifices and their bravery and their humility at a time when, when God knows we need to be reminded of these things um, more than ever before, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, and then, and then as soon as I, I hear about that, I see that Alexei Leonov died. And of course, this was the first man, first person to, uh, quote-unquote, walk in space. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, it was the Russian cosmonaut uh, who ventured outside his capsule for 12 minutes on March 18th, 1965. Right. And, uh, two and a half months before a U.S. astronaut achieved a, uh, a walk in space. Uh, trivia question, Dean Haglund, who was the first American to walk in space? Um... Uh, I'm going to say um, Glenn, uh, Glenn, maybe. <laughs> What's Glenn's first name? Glenn Glenn? John. Of Glenn Glenn uh, sound fame? Uh, <laughs> no. No. Interestingly enough, it was Robert Forster. It was not. No, it was not. Edward White the Second. Interesting. Oh. Huh? Not a name that uh, gets trotted out a lot because he was beat to the punch by Alexei Leonov, uh, who I was thrilled was honored by uh, Arthur C. Clarke in his novel uh, 2010, following up 2001, because the action takes place aboard a Russian, uh, you know, space exploration vessel named yeah. named the Leonov. Oh. Yeah. Oh, look at that. That's kind of cool. So, Alexei so oh. Alexi Leonov, uh, he uh, also, uh, so that all took place, of course, during the height of the space race. But in 1975, 
he commanded the Soviet half of the first joint space mission with the United States and the Soviet Union. And so, oh. hence, it was so perfect that Arthur C. Clarke names the vessel in 2010 the Leonov because it's got a joint American and Russian crew on it. Hey, that's perfect then. All right. Alexei Leonov uh, dead at the age of 85. If I didn't mention right. it, Francis Curry dead at 94. And right. Leonov uh, reminds me, as does in its own way the, the story of Francis Curry, uh, mm-hmm. about the current cinematic release, the space adventure film Ad Astra, starring Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Now, have you seen this? Why would I be bringing it up if I had not? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there was some other controversy about space and how astronauts said it's super authentic. If I was like the rest of America and had stayed away from it, would I be bringing it up? <laughs> so, so James Gray makes this film. James Gray, who most recently made the adventure exploration film Lost History or Lost City of Z. Oh, yes, uh, of course. From the great book. Yeah. And he made a perfectly functional uh, and adequately acceptable movie version of Lost City of Z, which got some good reviews, but was underwhelming. And that is how I feel about Ad Astra. His goal, he said, was to make the most authentic space travel adventure film ever. And uh, I find that even if there are details that lent itself to that, Uh um, the nature of how they approached telling this story lent itself to that aim not at all. What we have is a two-hour diary entry by <laughs> Brad Pitt's character with okay. fascinating scenes dropped in that you want to explore, uh, like a landing on the moon base and then needing to go under cover of darkness through the dark side of the moon to a secret military launch site to continue on uh, deeper into the solar system. And while on their way to that military site, they are attacked by terrorist forces. That's some interesting stuff to explore, right? This vision of the future. But it's just a single paint stroke on this poetic canvas inside the, uh, the psyche of Brad Pitt's character as he tries to resolve a father-son dynamic. And it's not that that's uh, unworthy of exploration, but it's the wrong form for this altogether. Uh, We've talked about Netflix uh, peripherally a couple times, how, uh, you know, Breaking Bad is back on Netflix, and yet uh, it's also playing in theaters. Um and how Netflix has changed box office and eliminated certain uh, budgets of movies. Here's a big-budget space exploration movie with maybe the biggest movie star on the planet, and it needed to be a Netflix series. (laughs) Oh, series? Yes. Here's a two-hour movie that should have been a 10-hour series. Ah. I actually am aware of this while watching it, and in the first hour, I've already counted out five episodes and where the episode breaks are. 
Oh, you're and kidding. expanding them out would have been extraordinary. Right. This is the Cloud Atlas phenomena. At Same least, thing. at least Cloud Atlas had true scope and scale to it. And right. one of the things that makes um, a film feel like it has scope and scale is how effectively it explores and expresses the passage of time. And that is the level to which this film fails exactly as Lost City of Z failed. Really? Yeah. You lose your sense of time. No, you... Scale of time. Exactly, the, the scale of time. No, right. you're very aware that you're watching a two-hour movie that has to pack all of this into two hours so everything feels condensed. No. So the the world you're watching feels condensed rather than a Lawrence of Arabia, which let's face it is not that long a movie. You think of it as this epic movie or 2001: yeah. A Space Odyssey. That's not a long movie. That's what two hours twenty minutes, two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's that. But it's expansive in terms of its exploration of time, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, it goes from new. Uh, pre-dawn, the pre-dawn of man to the whatever future thing that was. That's a big epic time scale for but sure. With, without being at a, break, a breakneck pace either. You feel like yeah. you really are living and breathing in and exploring this time. I mean, it's, it's, it's really what makes to this day cinema uh, far more than television or any other uh, film medium, certainly more than YouTube, uh, necessary uh, right. because its its relationship to time is uh, when when explored artistically is uh, akin to our how our subconscious uh, ex expresses and explores and deals with time through our language of dreams. Right. Uh, so, no, no dream has ever lasted more than than ten to fifteen seconds. We know this. We've we've measured the the brain activity, and yet, uh, how often have people told you their dreams and they're going on for five minutes describing it, right? Right. Uh, because yeah, exactly. because it's this ten second burst that is shot into your brain, but that doesn't mean it only contains ten seconds worth of storytelling information it expands as you explore it right right so and so now ad astra has compressed it or just done it linear yeah it compresses it and you become aware of all that you wish could be explored oh, oh. much like lost city of z I mean, the, yeah. the, the guy is working in the wrong form. And I thought about this even more in the wake of uh, Vince Gilligan's, uh, you know, Breaking Bad movie, because, yeah, Ad Astra, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make this a filmed uh, great American novel. And thanks to the HBOs, thanks to the Netflixes, uh, we now have, and, you know, before that, obviously, BBC. But BBC productions were operating on a certain limited budget level that has now expanded because of even their partnerships 
on these shores with Showtime, with HBO, with Netflix. So the, the financial game has changed, and you can have these epic tales told on these canvases uh, across many, many hours. And, yeah. uh, and you can explore it like a novel. And I put what, it down, pick it up. And what better way, in the case of certainly Lost City of Z, to explore what was an epic novel of exploration? Why yeah. would you want to condense that into a two-hour uh, movie? And here's one again, oddly enough, I don't think based on a novel, but that suffers from the exact same flaw. Wow. Damn it. I was really hoping that'd be a good movie. You you bummed me out about everything that's uh, did I say, right now. Did I say that it was bad? No, I didn't say that it was bad, but uh, a good movie. I don't think it ever wanted to be a good movie. Just like I don't think Lost City of Z wanted to be a good movie. I mean, this guy wanted to make the most authentic uh, exploration of space, you know, travel and adventure uh, ever put on, uh, you know, on the big screen. So he has enormous artistic aims. His aim was not to make a good movie. It was, he was, he was shooting much higher than that. Uh, As he was with Lost City of Z. And that might be not a bad place to end because it is a wonderful counterintuitive, uh, case study uh, when you consider that perhaps the greatest of all cinematic masters who we hail uh, quite often on this show Stanley Kubrick when he first approached his friend Arthur C. Clarke about writing 2001 A Space Odyssey together the, the pitch that he made to Arthur C. Clarke was let's make the proverbial good science fiction movie Right. That was the That's aim. All. That was the aim. Let's make the proverbial good science fiction movie. Let's not make the greatest artistic achievement of all time. And because they were men of, of brilliance, of insight, of interest, of dogged research and determination and patience and perfectionism, uh, lo and behold, by just being themselves, they took what could have been a good science fiction movie, and they made it one of the greatest movies of all time. Right. But, but, they, uh, but their aims, their initial impulse was, let's make a good movie. And, uh, and that's not a bad place to start. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not a bad place to start. No. Yeah. No, it's a good place. I think everyone should do that. That should be the standard from which we make things, make all things as craftspersons. It's, it's, if you remember with Vince Gilligan, it's where he starts with Breaking Bad. So much of what we think about as great from Breaking Bad uh, might not have been in there had history played out differently, right? If indeed, yes. as written, Breaking Bad was set in Riverside, California. Right. And they kill off Jesse, uh, what, fourth, fourth episode? Was the original script my my how things would would have been different? But um, he just wanted to make a good show. That's all yeah. he wanted was to make a good show. And when when the studio, when AMC, I guess, or the studio Sony said to him, "Hey, would you think about uh, filming in New Mexico?" 
uh, because of the tax rebate situation. He said, well, can I go do a, a you know, a location scout? And he went yeah. out there and he fell in love with it. And he said, right. is it all right if we actually set it here? Never mind, shoot it here as Riverside, which was the idea. But can we set it here? Suddenly the location becomes a character. The proximity yeah. to that border makes for different stories. Where Albuquerque is set in relationship to El Paso, such a different uh, story. Uh, indeed, Aaron Paul being cast as uh, Jesse. Uh, yeah. Oh, boy, the embodiment of this character makes me want to explore this character far more than I had ever thought prior to this. Right. Um, he just wanted to make a good show. Yeah. And uh, he set out making decisions based on that. And because Vince Gilligan is uh, a, a man of sensitivity and interest and uh, who works hard and loves to collaborate... Uh, lo and behold, after surrounding himself with like-minded and like-talented people, uh, the achievement is maybe the greatest show of all time. Right? And that's what he said. You go out and you try to do the best uh, TV show possible. The thing he learned from Chris Carter, what Chris Carter did, tried to do with the X-Files. All right. For many, many weeks, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, two filmmakers who have been uh, make who were making great films throughout their whole career. One still yeah. active; the other uh, died a few years ago. And uh, we'll finally, I think, get to that next week. But that brings us to an end of I hope an interesting episode of your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. I hope so too. Uh, people can find more and more episodes all the time as we continue to rebuild the vault at chillpackhollywood.com, C-H-I-L-L-P-A-K, hollywood.com. Of course, we're available on Blog Talk Radio. You can find every episode there. Uh, I don't know what the hell is going on with iTunes. Hopefully, uh, some of our subscribers will let us know. Is that still a yes. thing? Can you still subscribe and get the podcast via iTunes? Who knows? Think, well, we got we got a fix on the fix on that. There's a fix happening. Yeah, but I think That's you're not... thinking about a different issue altogether. You're thinking about that, that username. I'm talking about the fact that iTunes doesn't exist anymore. That's uh, what <laughs> uh, I'm talking about. That How can iTunes not exist anymore? All it... my stuff is on iTunes. <laughs> well, they weren't thinking about you when they released the new operating system. And, of course, Apple announced a while ago that iTunes was ending. Uh, uh, yeah. There would be no oh. platform anymore. They were separating it out into different things. So I don't know how that worked. Uh, you... <laughs> We're the lone gunman. You're the one that's supposed to know how that worked. Yeah, um, right. But, uh, I mean, it'll be a horrible day when my kung fu is better than your kung fu. Yeah. <laughs> Won't it, though? All right. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's the day you have to go make uh, violence prevention uh, speeches. All right. Uh, until then, uh, meaning next week or whenever we next uh, reconvene, uh, I'm Phil Lernis. Hello? And we lost Dean Haglund. Guests of your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour stay at the Baldwin Hills Motor Inn. Promotional consideration paid for by Empire State Gas. From farm to pump, we've got great gas. Belated spoiler alert.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.